again, the sermon series, Essential Truths for Challenging Time. And the essential truth that we'll reflect on this morning is a, a truth that's very basic to the Christian faith, and that is, is God is our Father. That is the essential truth for this morning, the fatherhood of God. This is something that Jesus modeled in his ministry. There are big theological statements uh, in the Bible that assert that Jesus is the one unique son of God. But also Jesus referenced his relationship to God as father tangentially, almost in passing. So in this passage, Jesus is praying uh, almost unscripted. And he says, I thank you, Father. Jesus had a paternal relationship with his father. He modeled God, his father. He taught it. Of course, our prayer for this, uh, the scripture that we will base this sermon series on is based on the Our Father. He taught his followers to pray, saying, Our Father. Not only did he model a fatherhood, a paternal relationship with God, not only did he teach us to have a paternal relationship with God, but in fact, he enabled a paternal relationship. He enabled us to have a fatherly relationship with God. I think it will be helpful for us to take just a very brief look at this important passage that explains that point. This from Ephesians chapter 2. Here is the passage in its entirety. It begins with a before and after. So before, remember that you were far from Christ. You had no hope without God. More is said, but those are the highlights. But God intervened, and he intervened through the blood of Christ. That being shed on the cross and through the blood of Christ, we are reconciled to God and we now have access to the Father through what Christ has done. So to some, God is summarized. God is our Father. Jesus modeled it. He taught it. He even enabled it. And it is so common for us to think of God as our Father. These words roll so naturally off our tongue, our Father, that we may have forgotten how audacious it is that we claim God as our Father. And I think one of the reasons that we are not blown away by claiming God as our Father is we have forgotten, perhaps, what a father is, or we've forgotten to apply what we know a father to be to God. Let me explain. I have, uh, have a couple of popular Im images of, from popular culture uh, displaying God. And here you see God is being portrayed by Morgan Freeman. I'm going to go through a couple of slides, and I want the listener or the watcher to Discern the common theme in these portrayals of God in popular culture. So first, Morgan Freeman, Bruce Almighty, not a bad movie. I've never seen this one, but famous. God is portrayed by George Burns. Third, not a movie, but a cartoon, The Cosmology of Timmy. I do not offer this because of its theological accuracy, but for its portrayal of God. And note how God is portrayed. So again, my question to you, what is the common factor in all of these images? They're old. Now, interestingly, if you were to type in father into your Google search engine and just see what images come up, no surprise, what comes up is not images of old people. 
Here is what comes up from a random selection, no discrimination, just the first images that pop up when you type in father, a young man, how old, 35, 40, a young daughter, how old, eight, nine, 10. What is the image that you have in your mind when you think of your father being the most fatherly? None of us have perfect parents, but I bet that each one of us can think of a moment when their dad, when your dad was being like a dad ought to be. How old were you in that moment? For me, I was 10 years old, riding bikes, playing uh, Star Wars uh, on Village Green Avenue. When we think of dad, when we think of father, we think of a young man. The Bible describes God as our father, but we, I think popular culture just following, we tend to envision God as our grandfather. And I have nothing against grandparents. I think there are a few grandparents on the line watching. Grandparents are great. I have great grandparents. My children have great grandparents. However, there is a significant distinction between a father and a grandfather, a parent, and a grandparent. Namely this, a father has, and a parent, uh, has everyday engagement. Grandparents typically have intermittent visits, especially on the holidays. Father is concerned with daily provision. Grandparents, they give special gifts. Grandma, grandpa, what did you give me? Fathers, parents are concerned with the details. Grandparents are concerned with the big picture. Uh, I referenced this before. My grandfather, who passed away at the ripe age of 105, saved the letters that I wrote to him, and I received them upon his death some years ago. I'm glad he saved them, but they're all pretty lame. They all have a fairly scripted formula. They begin with, thank you for the fill in the blank. All is doing fine here. I'm making my whatever grades I'm making, hope to see you soon. Not much detail. Fathers provide specific guidance, discipline, encouragement. Grandfathers, grandparents in general are just concerned with general benevolence. A pat on the head, a smack on the rump, off you go. There is a big difference between a father and a grandfather. God is portrayed as your father. We are taught to pray to him as father, not grandfather. The Bible invites us to envision God as not an old man, 60, 70, 80 years old, but a young father, 35, 40 years old, child on their lap, concerned for their daily provision, interested in every detail of life, eager to guide them in the good ways. And that is why it is audacious that we would think that the creator of all, the creator of the universe would be engaged with you and me to that degree. Sure, a grandfather, no problem. Someone that I visit occasionally, who I ask when I need things, who is concerned with my general benevolence, who I write, uh, general prayers to, all's well here, I'll check back in later. That makes sense. But this specific engagement, this interest in my daily provision and his, a father to guide me in my daily life, that is almost a bridge too far. 
However, this is exactly what Jesus modeled. God is your father. It is what he taught and is what he enabled. God, our father. Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 8. I will make three points from this very important passage that explores our relationship with God, our Father. Now, the subject of this passage is the Holy Spirit. And you see, I've highlighted the various ways the Spirit is referred to, various names for the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the subject. We are the object. The Spirit is acting on us, you Brothers, you, we are being acted upon in order to facilitate our relationship with our Abba Father, with God. God is the direct object. So the Spirit shapes us. Here's my summary of the passage. The Spirit's work, and by weight of words in the passage, you will have to conclude that this is the primary. We won't spend as much time, but just uh, note that the primary emphasis in this passage is the Spirit's leading, shaping us into the image of our Father. Secondly, the Spirit assures us of our intimacy with the Father. And third, the Spirit's work both to shape and assure is the normal experience of the Christian. So those are three points I want to make through this passage. And we're going to start with the third point, uh, that the Spirit's work to both shape and assure the Christian is part of our normal experience, experience. And I say that because I feel that when we see words like some of us, when we see words that are sound mystical, you're led by the Spirit. How does that work? It sounds very mystical. When we see words that are intimate and emotional, that we cry out, Abba, Father, we tend to think, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just not for me. I'm not that type of, yes, I'll, I'll sign off. I'll check the box on the appropriate doctrinal boxes. But uh, being led by the Spirit, calling out to God as my Father, my Abba, and you know that is simply a, probably you know that the Abba is just the Aramaic for the word dad, a very intimate, very colloquial phrase. You may think, many may think that's just not for me. However, this passage makes it clear that the reception of the Spirit and His work in your life are are the same thing as belonging to Christ. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian, someone who confesses faith in Christ, who is not possessed by the Spirit. Further, these two appear to be contemporaneous, as if there is no graduation from faith in Christ to some higher graduation or to experience of the Spirit. No, these are uh, phrases that are used synonymously to possess the Spirit, is to have faith in Christ, and they occur contemporaneously. To trust in Christ is to be uh, indwelt by the Spirit. In other words, to be to have the Spirit's work in your life of both leading us to the image of God, shaping us into the image of God, and assuring us of our intimacy with our Father are the normal experiences of, the, of every Christian. So let's move to our second point. Oh, sorry. Let's look at this quote I found very helpful. Take a second and read this from John Murray. 
there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. A mysticism, we are led by the spirit. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic ascent. No, there is a warmth to, in the heart of the Christian experience and when we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is the result of the Spirit's work. So we move on to our second point. The Spirit's primary work from this passage, I believe, is to shape us into the image of our Father. I'll touch on this very briefly, but again, you can see by the weight of words that the Spirit's work in us is to lead us both by a mortification, by helping us to say no to some deeds and to say yes to others. I want to think of our ethical decisions, the decisions you make and I make every day in terms of our paternal relationship, in terms of a relationship with a father to a son. Now, I think children are born with a natural desire to please their parents. I think every child comes into the world hoping, wanting to please mom and dad. I'm looking at my children to see if I can get any nods of assent. Not one. They don't seem to agree with this point, but I think it's true. Uh, which makes the abuse of that relationship such a heinous sin. For a child is left to reconcile things that cannot be irreconcilable, left to reconcile the irreconcilable, to please someone who is harming them. But children are born with a natural desire to please their parents, and I don't think it ever goes away. I was speaking recently with a friend a bit older than me, 55, 60. His father long since passed away. He was having a rough patch in his marriage, and he said, uh, there are many reasons I am not divorced, but one of the reasons I'm not divorced is because I'm afraid of my father. And that had the ring of truth to me, that we are... Even when our fathers are gone, as is mine, there is still a natural desire that we want to please our father. Of course, children grow, and I have children who are spanning the range of 16 to 6, and so of course there is comes a time in all children's life when they begin to question the wisdom or even the sanity of their parents. And this is uh, captures uh, that sentiment from the far side, a blast from the past, a cartoon teenager saying, hey, I didn't ask to be drawn. Of course, every child goes through a season of rebellion. But the Spirit's work is to remind us of something that Mark Twain con uh, concluded. And this is what Mark Twain wrote, that as a boy of 14, he believed his father was ignorant and I could hardly stand to have the old man around but by age 21 Mark Twain was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years and we should think of the role of the spirit in the same way the role of the spirit is to remind us that our father is good and we should think of our ethical decisions as ways that conform decisions that either conform us to his image and confirm our status as his son or daughter or do the opposite and so our first point our second point, sorry, the Spirit leads us to the image of our Father. Third and final, the Spirit assures us of our intimacy with the Father. 
And this is one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to whom we fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, or Father. As I studied this passage this week, I became aware of a difficulty in interpretation and a difficulty in translation. I want to share it with you, not because it's some it will be helpful for you in Bible trivia. No, 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 that's not my reasoning. It will be helpful for us because it will show us the pathway into this type of intimacy that is described here. So here is the, the translating question that scholars have debated and disagreed in on. The question is the relationship between the cry of fatherhood and the re- reception of the spirit. So... How does the receiving of the Spirit of God relate to our cry of Abba, Father? Option A, does the Spirit enable us to cry out Abba, Father? In other words, do we confess faith in Christ, receive the Spirit, and have vocabulary to express God, this intimate relationship with God? Option A, or option B, Does the Spirit assure us that we are God's children when we do cry, Abba, Father? Do you see the difference? You may think, I don't see much of a difference. I don't see why it matters. For my money, I think option B, not only because of my study from this passage, but also because of my experience as a parent. Let me explain. There is a common piece of parenting advice. That is, a parent is to maintain open lines of communication with their children. Why? So that when the child encounters something important, something weighty, something burdensome, there will be an open line of communication wherein that child can turn to their parent, their father, their mother, rather than some uh, resource that's going to be less helpful. Maintain open lines so that the child can cry out. Now we can envision, unfortunately, sometimes that not happening. When a burdened child does not turn to their parents, when the child faces a disappointment that is too sad, when faces a mistake that is too uh, burdensome, that the child simply does not, just holds it in. And what do you think a good parent would say to a child carrying an unrevealed burden? A a good parent would say, "I I don't know what it is that you're carrying, but I want you to know that you can come to me. And and if you come to me, you'll, you'll find out that I am a good father. I'm a good parent and I can be, uh, trusted with whatever it is that is burdening you. When you cry out, you will have it confirmed in your heart that I am a good father. And I think that is the meaning of the passage, that when we cry out to God, our father, 
The Spirit confirms in us that He is good and that He has heard our prayers and that He can be trusted with whatever it is that is burdening us. But you have to cry out to Him. Speak to God as your Father and trust Him with your cries. I want to offer just a simple challenge for these next couple of days. I want you to take an intentional step to pray to God as if He were really your father as he is. Be done with writing to your father in heaven as if he were your grandfather with general updates, asking for general blessing. No, speak to him as your father. Are you burdened? Speak to him. Cry out to him as your Abba Father. And as you do, I think this passage is assuring us that as you cry out, the Spirit will assure you will warm your heart, assure you that you are his beloved child, and further, that he is your father in heaven.